from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you make of the following phrases? Jumbo shrimp. Virtual reality. Old news. Only choice. Almost exactly or deafening silence. Now, those who have had issues with making travel connections lately might want to add airline schedule. (laughs) Others who are troubled by current affairs may suggest political ethics or military intelligence. All in all, you know what that leaves me? How about clearly confused? Of course, each one of these phrases could be called an oxymoron a figure of speech in which apparently contradictory terms appear in conjunction. It's taken from two Greek words meaning sharp and foolish. Now, they can be used ironically or satirically as figures of speech to interject drama or humor in writing or to add a bit of tension or uncertainty to an idea being expressed. In my feeble attempts at it, I find I'm torn between being seriously funny or just acting naturally. Anyway, when I looked at the readings for today, I was struck by the seemingly contradictory structure in two of Jesus' statements to his followers. And we'll get to that in just a little while, but I want you to be prepared because our gospel lesson for this morning appears to be a bit deceiving. Now, after all of those harsh images we were exposed to the last couple weeks in Matthew 10, this selection seems to be all sweetness and light by comparison. But don't be fooled. It's only five verses, 127 words. But there are deep rivers of theology flowing just beneath the seemingly calm surface here. We're back in the narrative realm from Matthew. For context, he has just been describing an interaction he'd had between, that had been had between Jesus and some followers who were sent by his cousin, John the Baptist, to inquire about whether Jesus is, in fact, the one they were waiting for. Jesus sends back some reassuring words to John through them, telling them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, he's telling John not to worry because these are all promised hallmarks of the coming Messiah. Then after pausing to explain to the crowd just how important John is, Jesus calls out those towns in the vicinity of Galilee where people had already witnessed his miracles in their own midst. He condemns the city of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, because they had not yet embraced the Son of God. He concludes by saying, For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. 
That's Matthew 11, 23, and 24. Now, that's serious stuff. And all of this leads up to today's passage where it starts out. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He offers a brief prayer of thanksgiving for a rather unusual reason, that of hiding the truth. And, you know, you can find this underlying theme throughout the Old Testament in such books as Jeremiah, where God tells the prophet, Call to me and I will answer you, and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. In Isaiah 29, we hear, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wondrous, wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. That's Isaiah 29, 13, and 14. And there are similar thoughts that I've found in Daniel, Psalms, in the Proverbs, and in many other places. So it sounds as if God hides stuff, at least to those who aren't open to receive it. And then, of course, Jesus amplifies this idea by saying, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here we come across that first idea that has some tension in it, especially this idea that no one knows the Father. Crazy, right? But we find a similar statement in the prologue from the Gospel of John, where Jesus, well, John writes about Jesus, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And Jesus also makes other unique claims about his relationship that are on point here. I and the Father are one, he says in John 10. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's John 14, 9, B and 10. The point of all this is that God can only be fully known through revelation. Now, we may be able to appreciate some of his attributes by observing the world that he created and continues to sustain, by the way. And we could perhaps infer from this what we experience from it that uh, we, we could have some idea about God's love of beauty and order, maybe. However, we can never know God's heart apart from being shown or being told about it, whether it comes through his immutable word, from the quiet voice of the Holy Spirit working on our conscience, or by the ultimate revelation of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Paul wrote in the Colossians. 
Through Jesus, you can, quote, be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's from Ephesians chapter 3. See, without that kind of connection, We can't know what God is truly like. We don't have a clue on our own, but he gives us these things freely through his grace. Speaking of grace, here is one of the most comforting statements Jesus ever made in the Gospels. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, God has been making this invitation for a long, long time. In Jeremiah, we read, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look. And ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. It's the tragedy in Jeremiah chapter 6. See, this path of righteousness is an ancient path, one that was set forth on the sixth day of creation when God spoke to Adam, who was at the time his best creation, that is, before Eve, okay? He declared one and only one rule for Adam to obey. You know, the the apple thing, remember that? But his epic failure brought decay, destruction, and death to what had been a perfect environment by exposing everything created to the corrosive action of sin. And the fall also introduced a consequence, the yoke of labor, one that is put upon all future generations. Everyone understands the concept of working. But Jesus here offers a unique respite from the worst of the yoke that we are all bearing. When we are yoked to sin, we bear a crushing burden, a weight that will inevitably grind us down, and ultimately crush any hope of salvation. Sin puts us on the wrong side of the line from God, making us his enemies. Under the law, we are most miserable, despondent about the future, and filled with despair about the present. But that's why Christ came. He came to bear that unremitting load of sin that we all carry because our broken, corrupted nature prevents us from ever being fully obedient. He comes to lift that that burden from us and take it upon himself to veil our unrighteousness from that righteous judge, God the Father, as he stands before the judgment throne in our place, being in perfect obedience to the demands of the law. Jesus stands as our substitute, covering all of our sins with his own precious blood. 
So that now when the Father looks upon us as believers, he can only see his beloved Son reflected back to him. Now, notice that Jesus didn't promise to lift all burdens from us. In fact, he lays a different sort of burden upon us, one driven by faith and its consequences. We learned about that from the last two gospel lessons, which describe the resistance and antagonism that gets thrown our way because we are people of the way and the truth and the life. Just remember... The yoke of sin may drag us hither and yon, seeking out the things of this world. But the yoke that Jesus offers us guides us inerrantly along the path to hope and righteousness and peace. It's amazingly simple and simply amazing. Amen. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.